Morning. Let's pray together. Father, we, we read in your word that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, help us to see how it applies to our lives. I pray that we would treasure it as it comes to us, and I pray that we would respond to it with lives that are given to you for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is an old military adage that says, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. When you think of it, uh, that makes a lot of sense. You can draw up a great plan for battle, but once you come in contact with a real enemy, a lot of variables enter in, and that battle plan won't quite survive the way you designed it. You may wonder what that has to do with giving. Well, it may be a bit indirect, but it has to do with the messiness of living out our faith. And that's the subject of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Uh, we're going to be looking at that section, 1 through 18, over the next three weeks. And in this section, Jesus is talking about how we live out our faith, and it's unavoidable that we are living it out in front of other people. And that's where it gets messy. It's easy to talk about our Christian faith. It's easy to talk about living it out. But when we come in contact with other people, a lot more variables enter in. And it gets more messy. How do we live out our Christian faith without hypocrisy. In each of the three examples Jesus gives in this section, 1 through 18, um, you'll see the same word appearing in each of the sections, and the word is hypocrites. We find it in verse 2, verse 5, verse 16, and Jesus wants us to avoid becoming one. How do we do that? The answer has to do with how we look at righteousness. Jesus said in chapter 5 that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is a tall order. That is a really high standard to achieve. And we're used to thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees as the bad guys. And often they were. They kept kind of getting things wrong. Jesus kept pointing that out. But these were people who made living a righteous life their main business. They worked at living a righteous life. And if our righteousness is to exceed theirs, we've got a really tough assignment. In fact, to make it to heaven, we would need to have perfect righteousness. Anybody here achieved that? Didn't think so. Me neither. The good news this morning is that Jesus has achieved that for us. He came, lived a sinless life, 
and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In the most unfair exchange in all of history, he took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness in its place. And he robes us in his righteousness when we call on him for salvation. He covers us with his righteousness. And what we could never achieve on our own, he achieves and gives to us as a gift of his grace. You might call that positional righteousness. Because in terms of our standing before God, we are 100% righteous in Christ. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. We have right standing with the holy God because of what Jesus has done for us. That is really good news. The challenging news is that he doesn't take us to heaven right when we choose to trust in him. He leaves us here. He has purpose for us. He has a mission for us to accomplish with our lives. That means we get to live out this positional righteousness in practical ways. So positional righteousness lived out through practical righteousness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He has worked it into us. Now we work it out in the living of our lives. We don't work for it, we can't earn it, we work it out instead. And to work something out, you have to have something to work out. You have to have it in the first place. And so, having received the righteousness of Christ, we work that out in practical ways in the living of our daily life. Now today, we embark on a section of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll cover uh, over the next three weeks. And this section is about practical righteousness. Practical righteousness, the living out, the working out of our faith. And there's no way to do it apart from being in front of other people. And that's where it can get messy. So when Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people... He's using that word practicing in the sense of living it out, working it out. Beware of living out your righteousness before other people. As soon as we start practicing our faith, as soon as we start putting our faith into action, we get seen by other people. What then? Ever been at a gathering of friends? And you're just visiting and having a good time, just kind of unaware of all that's going on, just, you know, just having a good time, and then somebody turns on a video camera. And all of a sudden, you are really aware. You are aware that you're being recorded. You become very self-conscious in that moment. And you run things then 
through a mental grid that weighs all of the things you're saying and doing in terms of what people will perceive when that recording is played back. And that changes everything. Changes everything. It's just a natural result. And in the living out of our faith, Jesus warns us that we'll be doing it in front of other people. And that can influence how we do it. There's no way not to be in front of other people in the living out of our faith. And therein lies the challenge of living out our faith and doing some things that are a part of this practical righteousness. And Jesus mentions three of those things, giving, praying, and fasting in verses 1 through 18. So we'll take up the first of them today, giving. Let's look again at our text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. A couple key concepts stick out to us right away as we read those words, and those are motives and rewards. Both of them are mentioned in verse 1, and both of them are key to understanding this section. Um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That speaks to our motive. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That speaks to the issue of rewards. Here's the gist of what I want to get across. If you play to an audience of many, you will be concerned about how you look to them and what they say about you. How you look, to be seen by them, verse 1. What they say, to be praised by them, verse 2. That's what happens if you are playing to an audience of many. But if you play to an audience of one, you will be concerned only for his approval. Let's consider each of those possibilities. First, playing to an audience of many. It's easy to pick on the Pharisees. Whether or not they actually sounded trumpets is up for debate. But the fact of the matter is, when you're aware that people are watching you, it's hard not to want to look good in their eyes. And if you're playing to an audience of many, you will want to be noticed. You will want to make a favorable impression on as many of them as you can. Let's focus on three things that flow out of playing to an audience of many. What you'll do, what you'll get, and what you'll be. First, what you'll do. If you're playing to an audience of many, what will you do? You will sound the trumpet when you're about to give, right? Sound the trumpet. You'll call attention to yourself. A couple reasons why. One is to be seen by them, verse 1. If your giving is for selfish reasons, you'll want to position your giving to where it can be seen by the most people possible. 
many of you know that, that I serve on the board of, of the uh, honor flight that is based in Wausau. And uh, we had a, a flight a couple weeks ago. Uh, we have a pre-flight dinner each time. And, uh, and in the program for the pre-flight dinner, we have an insert that lists major contributors to the honor flight. And you can give at different levels. So you can be listed as a squad-level giver by giving $5,000, squad-level. You can be listed, and, and there's a, there's a half-page of those. Uh, you can be listed as a platoon-level giver for $10,000, and there's another half-page of those. You can be listed as a company-level giver for $20,000, and it even goes up from there. Why print those names? Well, somebody who's pretty wise with the ways of fundraising has chosen to do that. It's an incentive. People give more when they become known for their giving, and so you list their names. It's a great incentive for giving. Secular fundraisers do it all the time. When we built the district ministry center in Stevens Point when I was superintendent, uh, we needed to pay for it. And so we were doing some serious fundraising, and one guy who was known for his fundraising capabilities came in and said, you know what you need to do? You get this wonderful, great room with great view, and it can be used for different things. You should offer naming rights to the great room for $50,000, or $50,000 contribution. Your name! could be above the door of this room. That's what fundraisers do. It's not what we did. <laughs> we decided we didn't want to do that. We, we don't want to call attention to individuals. But that's what you'll do if you're concerned about looking good in front of others. Now, why are people attracted to things like that? The answer is given in verse 2. To be praised by them. People give money in public ways to be well thought of, and it works. Uh, printing names of big donors in programs, printing names of big donors over doorways will always be an effective, effective fundraising strategy because it works. People want to appear generous, and so they give when people's eyes are on them. In fact, there's a subtle pressure to use this it makes us want to give more. A couple examples uh, will serve to remind us of how surrounded by that subtle pressure we are. Tina and I went to eat at Panda Express recently. We, we only go to the finest restaurants. And we go into Panda Express and order two kids' meals. It's a, it's a great value. So we got all the way through and got to the cashier, and she says, would you like to round up to the next dollar to support the Children's Miracle Network. And I go, sure. You know, and she rang a bell and all the employees turned to us and said, thank you. It's like, wow, you know, this subtle pressure to give more. Uh, another time we were at a Culver's, again, only the finest, and I, I swiped my card, and, and on the screen, it asked me what size tip I wanted to leave. Now, now, wait a minute. I'm ordering at a counter. I'm filling my own beverage, 
and it wants me to leave a tip. And it suggests 10%, 15%, 20%, or no tip. And there's a subtle pressure to hit one of those numbers instead of the no tip thing. I feel so cheap hitting the no tip thing, but these incentives are all around. What will people think of you if you hit no tip on your screen? What you will do if you are playing to an audience of many, you will sound the trumpet, you will want to look good in their eyes. What you will get is short-term rewards. Short-term rewards. You'll get people's attention, verse 1, and you'll get people's praise, verse 2. When we're going for the praise of people, the praise of people is all we'll get. Just that short-term reward. Jesus says in verse 2, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And that word received implies they have been paid in full. That's all they're going to get. Jesus makes it clear in verse 1, they will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So you can have your reward now, or you can have it later. You get to choose which it will be. You can't have both. And what it takes to have the reward later is faith. Now, you remember, I think, uh, I I talked about uh, this great social science experiment called the marshmallow experiment some time ago, where uh, a researcher sits a kid down in front of him at a table and says, I have a marshmallow for you, and you can eat it now if you want, but... I have a whole bag of marshmallows in my office, and I'll go get it. And if you haven't eaten this one when I come back, I'll give you three instead. And so then the researcher leaves the room, the camera rolls, and you just watch the kid decide. And some kids will just pop that thing in their mouth right away and be done with it. Some will agonize over it, and some will wait. What's it take to wait for the researcher to come back with his bag of marshmallows? According to the secular Uh, social science folks, it it takes what they call deferred gratification, which I submit to you is another word for faith. It takes faith in the researcher that he is going to be true to what he said he will do, and he will bring back a reward. And the kid simply trusts in him and waits by faith for a greater reward. Same thing here. We can have a short-term reward now or an eternal reward later. What it takes to wait for that eternal reward is faith. So if you play to an audience of many, what you'll do is you'll sound the trumpet to be seen and praised by people. What you'll get will be short-term rewards, attention and praise. And what you'll be, according to Jesus, is a hypocrite. Now that word hypocrite uh, is a word from Greek drama. And what it referred to is that uh, this idea that, that actors would play multiple roles and they would simply switch masks when they came back on stage and they could play different roles, the same person doing it. So the mask was the hypocrite and uh, by wearing one, you would become that. You were essentially an actor trying to convince people that you are something that in reality you are not. That's a good thing for an actor to be able to be versatile, to be able to take on different roles. 
You may think of actors and actresses that you've seen in very different roles. I mean, who comes to mind when you think of someone who has played very different roles? I think of people like Russell Crowe or Denzel Washington, Julia Roberts, very different roles. Uh, One that, that was on my mind this week when I was putting this together was Morgan Freeman. He has been in so many diverse roles. Uh, He has played the part of a Civil War soldier, uh, an inmate in prison, a wealthy businessman, a bank robber, Nelson Mandela, God. I mean, it takes some versatility to play all of those roles. And that kind of versatility is great for an actor to have, but it's not a good trait for a follower of Christ. You become a hypocrite. You become a chameleon. People wonder, who are you really? And when you play to an audience of many, that answer is changing all the time. Who are you really now? So the alternative to playing to an audience of many is playing to an audience of one. When you play to an audience of one, you're not concerned with what others are thinking because your desire Your aim is to please only one, your Father in heaven. And the same three things that flow out of playing to an audience of many also flow out of playing to an audience of one. Let's consider them in turn. First, what you'll do, you will keep your giving secret. Rather than sounding the trumpet when you're about to give, you will want to keep your giving secret. First, from others. You won't call attention to it. Sound no trumpet, Jesus says. You look for ways to give anonymously. Tina and I were on vacation once, and we were talking about someone who we were aware was going through some time of financial tightness. And we thought, what a blessing it would be if they could receive something, but we didn't want them to know who it was coming from. And so we, I don't recommend this, we we stuffed cash in an envelope, And uh, we mailed it to them with no return address uh, from somewhere in Ohio. And we just thought, this is great. I mean, they're going to open this. They're going to get blessed. And they're going to go, who do we know in Ohio? And uh, we really enjoyed that. And then while we were enjoying it, it dawned on us that maybe we were enjoying that too much. Maybe we were congratulating ourselves a bit much. See, the challenge comes then in the form of what Jesus said in verse 3, not letting your left hand know what your right hand's doing. We can congratulate ourselves on our giving, and that can be a bad thing as well. We can get puffed up with pride in ourselves. So not only do we need to keep our giving secret from others, but we need to keep it secret from ourselves. How do we do that? How do we not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing? How do we keep the knowledge of what we're giving from ourselves? I believe the answer lies in our approach to spiritual disciplines. The three examples that Jesus gives here in this section, Matthew 6, 1 to 18, giving, praying, and fasting, were all commonly practiced spiritual disciplines. And those disciplines, when we practice them, especially when we begin to practice them, may feel a bit awkward until we've gotten into the rhythm of doing them. 
when we first start practicing them, they feel awkward, but when they have become a part of us, they become much more natural. And instead of asking what would Jesus do, through exercising spiritual disciplines, we end up doing what Jesus would do without needing to ask. Do you remember learning to tie your shoes? I do. It's been a couple of years. I still remember it, though. I, I remember, you know, mastering that and going, this is great. You know, I can, I can finally do it. But if you had to write out instructions for your right hand and your left hand in terms of how to tie your shoes, you'd never learn how, right? It would be so confusing trying to figure out how to follow those instructions. But in time, through practice, you lose the awkwardness of tying your shoe as doing that becomes a habit. And it's the same with spiritual disciplines like praying or fasting or, in this case, giving. We give as a spiritual discipline. It becomes a part of us. And we give because God gave to us. So we make it a practice, a spiritual discipline. And we focus on what God has done for us. And what we do for him will not only become a habit, but it will also take on its proper perspective. In Luke chapter 17, verse 10, Jesus says, When you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When we have established the spiritual discipline of giving, our giving will be nothing special to us. It'll be hidden from others. It'll be hidden from ourselves. What we will do if we're playing to an audience of one, we will keep our giving secret from others and from ourselves. What we'll get? Reward from the Father. Verse 1 and verse 4. What's that look like? Well, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, Jesus tells a parable, and it was about some people who were managing their master's money. And the one who managed the money well was told, well done, Good and faithful servant. To hear God say that to us will be the most amazing reward we could imagine. Is it wrong to want a reward? Do we become mercenary in our approach by desiring a reward from the Lord? C.S. Lewis put it this way. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. The reward is, is what flows out of doing that action. 
In other words, to do what pleases God comes with the satisfaction of having pleased God. And it's built in. So if you play to an audience of one, what you'll do is you'll keep your giving secret from others and yourself. What you'll get is the reward of hearing God's well done. And what you'll be is a disciple, a faithful servant. Your motive is to be faithful. And hearing the Father commend you for being faithful is all the reward you could ever ask for. One more issue and then we're done. Here it is. Is there an inherent contradiction between what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 16, and what he says here in chapter 6? You'll recall that we looked at chapter 5, verse 16 just a few weeks ago, where Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And here in chapter 6, Jesus says, in essence, keep your giving hidden from others and from yourself. Don't let them see. Is there a contradiction between those two statements? Well, if you think there is, then you've got to wrestle with the question, when Jesus got to chapter 6, verse 1, could he not remember what he said in chapter 5, verse 16? I think he could. In chapter 5, verse 16, what Jesus says there is that people are to see our good works and give glory to God, not to us. So people see us doing something, and the glory bounces off of us and goes to God. Remember when we looked at that just a few weeks ago? I said, when somebody commends you for doing something and says, you are such a nice person, you are such a good person, what did I suggest you say to them? You should have seen me before Jesus got a hold of me, right? Yeah, I was a mess. So the glory that they intend for us bounces off of us and goes to God. Think of it this way. Chapter 5, verse 16 challenges the timid to do something that will bring glory to God. But chapter 6, verse 1 challenges the proud not to do things for their own glory. It's a difference of who the audience is. In chapter 5, it's the timid. Do something that will bring glory to God. Here, it's to the proud saying, don't bring glory to yourself. As we live out our faith, people will be watching. It's inevitable. And our awareness of that fact can influence our behavior. If we're playing to an audience of many, we'll want to impress as many people as we can. But if we're playing to an audience of one, his approval is all we need. Besides that, his approval is the greatest reward we could hope for. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to live out our faith on a daily basis in such a way that it gives glory to you and not attention to ourselves. So help us to be faithful. Help us to be doers of your word. And help us, Lord, to bring glory to you. For the sake of your gospel, that many might come to know Jesus as their Savior and receive the gift of his righteousness 
and then to work that out in the living of lives that give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.